Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When Jochen Mass made his Formula One debut in 1973, he raced against legends such as Jackie Stewart, Francois Sauvert and Denny Holm. When he ended his career, he was teammate to Michael Schumacher in the Sauber Mercedes sports car team. Because Jochen spanned the generations like few others in the history of the sport, and he's my guest this week. Welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Jochen and I first met at Goodwood in the UK. He was entertaining some guests, and I remember being struck by how articulate he was and how much racing sense he demonstrated. And why shouldn't he? He raced alongside many of the sport's greats. He was teammate to Emerson Fittipaldi and James Hunt at McLaren, and Jackie Ick, Stefan Beloff, and Hans Stuck at Porsche. And he mentored the Mercedes juniors Michael Schumacher, Heinz Harald Frentzen, and Carl Wendlinger as well. But for all of those great memories, there were sad times as well. Jochen won the shortened Spanish Grand Prix in 1975, in which four members of the crowd were killed. And it was his car that Gilles Villeneuve touched when he crashed at Zolder in 1982. The greatest unhappiness imaginable occurred before race day. In the closing stages of the last practice session for today's Belgian Grand Prix, motor racing and the world lost a much-loved and truly courageous sportsman when Gilles Villeneuve, fighting to improve his starting grid position, hit the March car of Jochen Maas in a 150 miles an hour accident which must intensify the need to reduce cornering speeds and improve Grand Prix safety. Villeneuve's Ferrari was completely shattered and the driver hurled against the catch fencing. Tragically, heart massage and specialist treatment in Louvain failed to save his life. I knew him well. I knew his, his kids, I knew his wife, and, um, you know, we were often together in Monaco. And, um, you know, I liked him a lot and so on. But the way it happened, you look in the mirror and you see the car coming in the back, and then you move over to the right to give the fast inside lane, which is normal, it's the usual race lane. But then he was already on the right, and he just gently tapped my wheels, and he flew past me. Rear wheel, front wheel, and I thought, it happened next to me all the time. I mean, I was sort of ghosting under, underneath, uh, looking at him being flung out of the car with the back plate of his, his, his chassis, you know, from his seat. And then he flew across the road into the catch fencing. So I stopped and ran across and I could see his big eyes. It was terrible. It was so utterly terrible that I thought, you know, what can you do? What can you do? I didn't feel guilty necessarily, but I said, why take risks like that? He did, you know, and that's what basically everybody said too. 
because the situation with Pironi was such that he couldn't face Pironi being quicker than he was. And on, he was quicker then in that moment. And um, so I still raced the next day. You know, I still raced. And my engine blew in exactly the same spot where the accident happened. And um, it was most ironic. And there I sat during the race and I watched, you know, all this, the marks and, you know, I knew it was very, very strange. And um, I felt terrible. I really did. But, you know, you, it's a race accident. You have to see it like that. We've had a big accident on the back straight. That is Mario Baldi, but Jochen Mass is off as well, I think. Jochen Mass has gone off in the march. I think the two cars touched. A few races later, the French Grand Prix in Le Castellet, and Baldi puts his, his front wheel between my right wheels, and I flipped on the road doing 288. And there, right further down, is Mass's car, and goodness me, it's gone through the catch fencing, over the Armco barrier, it's right in the spectator area, and it's on fire. Tenth lap in the race, full tanks, and I flew, and the rollover bar was pushed in the first time it hit the, hit the road, and it caught fire because of that. The tank was pushed in, and um, so I ended up flying over. I got these knocks on the head. The helmet was broken right down to the thing, and I was flying end over end over the guardrail, over this uh, service road, into the spectators, burning. I was wrapped in, in the chicken wire, and luckily I was the right way around. Had I been with the head down, I would have been decapitated, sliding over this concrete because there was nothing anymore to protect you. And so on. So there I was, and it got hot, and I thought, this is going to be tight. And of course, you feel that you can't get out. And then it was flooded by a foam gun. Luckily, 40 meters up, quickly came down and flooded it in foam. And uh, my wife sitting at home and the, on TV, listening to the commentator, saying that he's dead. He can't survive that. But then I was, you know, got out of the car. And I had a prank on the shoulder, but I had nothing. I was blackened from the from the fire and all that. You know, my, my overall my helmet, what was left of it. But um, other than that, I had no injuries. That's Jochen Mass being led away. Jochen Mass shrugging his shoulders, waving his hands. And I think he is very, very lucky to be alive. While I flew, I had this strange sensation of you know, your life is going in slow motion, you know, past you, and this was beautiful. It sounds ridiculous. It was beautiful. I saw the boys and my, my life and as such, and it was all nice. But at the same moment, I felt there's someone pointing at you. So you may as well give in to Formula One because the team was not very good and so on. So it didn't, you know, it didn't make any sense to continue. So that was it, and then I quit Formula One. And do you think Gilles' accident had helped contribute to your decision to quit Formula One? Oh, absolutely. It was definitely the, the point. You know, had it not happened, perhaps I would have continued driving. Gilles' accident, you know, which sort of compounded the whole attitude of negativism, you know, in, in racing, how it can be sometimes. 
why didn't you retire from all forms of racing? Because driving at Le Mans at 250, that's not slow. That's dangerous. I didn't think that's dangerous. I just thought driving in a bad team in Formula One. And uh, by, you know, not being able to win anymore or to at least to get into the points or to get into a better sort of situation within the group. You're just an also run always in the back. I didn't feel this was worth it. The risks were too high. So um, that's why I didn't do it anymore. And uh, it was a quick decision then. And I thought that was real. And I feel I just jumped off the, off the, 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 the barrel just here and then with so much luck that you can't always rely on that. This was, it was too much luck, but you needed to survive all that without really particular injuries. So you don't have to push your luck. We'll get back to Jochen right after this. So we all know that a VPN protects your privacy and security online, right? But just in case some of you out there don't know, you can also use a VPN to access your Netflix account or watch TV. If you happen to find yourself in a different country and can't wait to find out what's happening on your favorite show. And using a tool like ExpressVPN is simple. All you have to do is sign up, log in, choose your virtual location out of the near 100 countries available, hit the connect button, and that's you sorted. You can sit back and watch TV just as if you're at home in your own living room. And it's really useful when I'm on the road, as all I need is my laptop at the ready. Not that I actually have much time to complete a box set these days. Anyway, there's plenty of drama in Formula One this season to keep me entertained, and roll on this weekend's Turkish Grand Prix for the next episode. There are hundreds of VPNs available out there, but ExpressVPN is a standout because it's ridiculously fast. You can stream everything in HD quality with no buffering or lag, and it's available on your phone, laptop, tablet, and even your TV. Just use the link expressvpn.com grid, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com grid. Jochen walked away from the wreckage of his burning car in France and also walked away from Formula One. But he continued racing in sports cars, eventually becoming a Le Mans winner and a mentor to Michael Schumacher. Jochen certainly had plenty of experience to draw on when advising his young countrymen, because his own racing career is full of twists, turns, tragedy and larger-than-life teammates. I was, first time when I drove a single-seater, I was nearly 25, I was 24, and that was 1971. So I drove Super V and then Formula 3 in the UK, and so on, and then I did Formula 3, Formula 2, already the following year, and so on, and then, of course, I was in Formula 1 already in 73. I got into this group of Formula 1 guys, you know, the Graham Hill and Jackie Stewart, of course, and Bonnier and, you know, and Peter Refson and Denny Halm and all these guys, and of course, Mike Halewood, who was one of my favorites, and Peter Gethin, and so on. Fantastic people, wonderful guys. And, you know, as a young sort of race driver, I mean, I was not young in years, but I was a young race driver. And to be suddenly amongst them and be one of them, oh, this was really nice. 105 races, a win, eight podiums. How, how do you sum it all up? 
I think I made a mistake from the word go, you know, driving for John Zerdes and so on. Okay, this was 1973, half a year, and then 74. And then, of course, 74, I, I quit because there was <clears throat> there were too many things wrong with the car, not design-wise, but the way it was built and so on. So I lost total faith in this sort of setup. It was too small. He had no money. I mean, I became vice champion in Formula 2, which was nice when in his cars. You made your Grand Prix debut at Silverstone 1973, and you got caught up in that first lap crash triggered by Jody Schechter. Can you just describe what it was like when all the mayhem was going on around you? It was a very brief thing going through my head and I thought, if that's Formula One, it's shit. I don't like it. <laughs> Please, don't. <laughs> that's exactly what it was. I mean, I didn't hurt myself. I crashed into Mike Helwood's right rear end, you know, and, and uh, he got stuck in the pit wall and so on. So all three cars of 30s were write-offs. And that was a bit of a drama for him, of course. And um, I thought, if that's Formula One, as I just mentioned, I don't like it. But then the next one then was Nürburgring for me. You were always brilliant at the Nordschleife. Jackie Stewart used to call it the green hell. What was your attitude towards that track? I think the green hell is a misnomer because it was not a hell at all. It was damn nice. It was a beautiful circuit. And it was the most, most exciting circuit. You could call it a green hell, or you could have called it a green hell, earlier on when it was just hedges, keeping the car sort of at line, you know, in the corners, but um, before they built the guardrails and all that. But um, to me, you know, you drove different. You know, when you have a circuit like this, you're totally aware of its inherent dangers, obviously. And you drive it, you know, with a certain conscience you know, being aware of how dangerous it might be if you crash and so on. So you drive, instead of 99% or 100%, you probably drive 90. You have to adapt to the track and not change the circuits to adapt to the cars. And that's a pity what we do nowadays. You know, we shouldn't have that. We should have more demanding tracks, which are also for the driver more challenging. You joined McLaren full-time in 1975. Yeah. Can you describe what life was like alongside Emerson Fittipaldi? Well, let's say alongside Teddy Mayer first. <laughs> so when I came to Le Castellet, it was the first time that I tested for the Marlboro team. And um, he looked at me and he said, are you fit? Mm-hmm. And I said, sure. He said, okay, we run a, we run a lap. Me with my uh, beautiful boots on. <laughs> You know, sort of with fairly heel, fairly heeled boots, and so on. So we and he was in his sneakers, and we ran a whole lap. And um, you know, I kept up with him quite easily, and so on. And he, he accepted that. He said, "Okay, so I can see you're fit enough." And silly things like that. That was your first test. <laughs> yeah, Teddy was peculiar when it came to things like that. But look, with Emerson, Emerson was the big important figure in the team. You know, it was very important for Marlboro, Philip Morris, and so on. So everything was focused on him. I sort of tagged along quite happily. They liked me because, you know, I'm such a likable guy. Ha ha. But, um, you know, 
you are number two. You are definitely number two. And therefore, you have to make the best of it and see how you can establish yourself next to your, other, next to your team mate. And uh, Emerson was a very good, um, let's say, politician as well. And so, on. so of course, he, he pulled everything towards him. And I could only learn. That's what my opinion was then. You know, I could only learn. I did look at him and I, not that I wanted to emulate him exactly. I just wanted to be as quick as he was. Or maybe if it's sometimes a bit quicker than I was occasionally. Well, how quick was he, Jochen? Oh, he was very quick. He was very, hmm. um, very cautious too. And he didn't like to take risks. So when it sometimes got a bit like in Barcelona or also at the Nürburgring where we had problems with the tyres and so on, he opted not to run. So he said, no, I don't want to take these risks. So he did that. And, um, you know, I felt, I didn't feel the danger as much as he did. Maybe a lack of experience, I don't know what. But, um, yeah, no, I, you know, I was also safety conscious because also of Jackie Stewart, because he was then the head of the, the Formula One uh, safety committee, if you like. And he had very good ideas. So... I tagged along with that, but I also realized if you want to do it, you have to accept certain risks. Otherwise, you don't need to do it. Forget about it. Walk away. But, um, you know, you just take it in your, don't overdo the risky bit. You have your fellow, fellow drivers, right, left and center and ahead of you and behind you or whatever. So they're nice guys. You don't want to endanger anybody. You know, sort of just take it safe as you can. So it sounds a bit simple, but um, that's basically what you should be like. couple of races in 75 I'd love to ask you about. First up, um, Brazil. You finish on the podium alongside Emo and Carlos Pache wins the race. I think the picture of that particular scene you just described, I still have. And that describes it best. You know, you can see this sort of perfectly, you know, contented smile on your face, you know, and you think, great, you know, what took Nikki, sort of in one of the later stages. And uh, I had to, to force my way past him a little bit because, because he defended himself. So I bumped with my front wheel against his side pod on the, between his left wheels. And I did this very consciously. And he was not aware of it in that moment. And he, I could see him going, this is something, you know, which is harmless. But um, nevertheless, you put your point, you, you, you make your point and say, all right, here I am. So don't take me as a floppy here. And did you realise at that race just how big Emo was, particularly at home in Brazil? Of course, you know, Amazon was uh, the biggest possible figure in Formula One then, especially in Brazil. I mean, Carlos Pacho is great. And that he won the race was wonderful, you know, for him. But um, it didn't mean that Emerson lost a little bit in the public perception. Quite the contrary. He was always the, the, big, the big boy. Later, Nelson Piquet, of course, he overtook him, perhaps. But uh, no, Emerson was uh, very much the big boy. I mean, don't forget he was very young when he went to England and so on. And he was the youngest world champion. And then, so it was quite remarkable. Now he was a he was a good guy to have in the team, and sort of to hone your skills 
on him a little bit and uh, and see what you can do. Now, Spain 75, the race that you win, but it was a tragic race. Four spectators were killed. Emerson didn't start that race because he had concerns about safety. Did you think about not starting? Yes, but for different, you know, I had a different idea because they all wanted to strike and go and strike and things like that. And I said, look, we're in Franco, Spain. I don't think it's a very bright idea. So I think we should drive, but we should demonstratively drive slowly. You know, you start, but you do it gently. And so on. you drive around like a corso almost, just to make the point. Hmm. You know, the flag dropped and they went off and two Ferraris had each other off and all that. So it was an immediately proper race. And uh, I was going around, you know, in the, in the first group and said, what did we just talk about? What did we agree on? What did we agree on? And why does nobody give a damn, you know, about all this and so on? Meanwhile, you know, you have to see also the point the teams did the best to get the balls with a nut in the back secured so it wouldn't fall out so easily. In the beginning, there were just balls sticking in, but no nuts holding the, the screws together. And so, and so it was quite a, a strange a strange thing. The track is beautiful. You know, Montjuic Park. Yeah, Montjuic is great. Super nice. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I liked it a lot, actually. It was, in a certain way, it was actually... More interesting than Monaco, perhaps a little more dangerous, but um, it was a bloody good track. And that I won it was just, uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't face me much, quite honestly, because, you know, I drove through the rubble, there were Stommelen and Parcher, yellow flags, of course, and then Jackie went past me, Jackie X, and I quickly followed him, and I thought, quickly overtake him, just in case. So that's why I won the race. But to me, there was not really a win, obviously. But, uh, you know, statistically, yes, it was a victory. But, um, you know, I'm so much more would have wanted to win the Nürburgring in 75 already when we had this problem with the tyres. They didn't last a lap if you really pushed it hard. So they blew. And I had a crash, not a heavy one, but a light crash in, uh, in practice with a blown tyre, like many other guys too. And uh, they flew in new tires from the States for the Sunday race. And um, they put three new ones on. I mean, they were all new, but this was the old type, the front right. But I didn't know. First lap coming down, you know. And I was lying force. And I thought, I'm going to win that. Because I knew the guys, and I knew I would be quicker. That's what I thought. And the bottom... My front right tire delaminated completely at 280, flap, flap, flap. And of course, then you have a left-hander coming up. Of course, then you crash into the guardrail sideways. And you go along the guardrail and you shoot across the road where it turns right into Adenau. Anyway, and there I was climbing out of my, of my broken car. And the few spectators standing around said, idiot, can't you go slow in the first lap? They didn't know what had happened, of course. And I said, hmm, you know. Very frustrating. Yeah. Go back to the pits. I said, how did that tire get onto my car? And they said, no idea. And that was drama. I knew I would have won that race. That was 75. 
Nürburgring, 76. This is another story. There's so much to ask you about 76, actually, Jochen. So Emerson leaves McLaren to go and do his own thing with Kopasuka, and in comes James Hunt. How serious was James? James, you know, let's say the way he grew in in racing. In Formula 3, I was quicker. That's why I got his seat and I ousted him because he crashed too many cars. Formula 2, he was not quicker either. And then he got into this fortunate situation. Harvey Postlethwaite, great designer. Alexander Heskes, fantastic team boss, if you like. Politically well-versed and you know, he was, and so on. And then, of course, with Bubble Sorsley, you know, being the team manager, one-car team. So he was the focus point, the center point of everybody, for everybody. So that was great. And then, of course, with the connections he, he had, he got good engines too, and he won a Grand Prix, which was fabulous. It's good for Harvey Postletway, great designer, very, very good, and, um, and so on. So, and that, of course, made James already almost larger than life. And then when he when he got the offer to drive for McLaren, you know, I thought, hmm, there's my number two place, my number two situation cemented, you know, in concrete and so on. I cannot get out of that one with the blondie locks, you know, being number one and so on. Okay, nothing wrong with that. I mean, he was good then. Of course, he was very focused and this and that. But he was not the wonder boy they made him out to be later. And I'm not saying that now in, with hindsight or whatever, but he wasn't. I knew it then. He had all the, the premier treatment. And in 76 then, Cosworth made three engines for three teams, which had, believe it or not, Keith Duckworth told me that in the 90s, they had 70 horsepower more, not one seven, but seven zero. And that of course was from mid season onwards, you know, suddenly these three cars was Andretti with the Lotus, of course Tyrrell, Schechter, and James with the McLaren. To me, when I heard that later, I thought, damn it. But then I understood, you know, it was for a while until then, I was as strong as uh, James in some races. So it's forever some political things which matter. And um, there's nothing you can do about it. About James, I mean, he has this playboy image. Is it justified? Of course, it's absolutely justified. He was a playboy. He was downright silly sometimes. And I told him so. I said, James, eh, calm down a bit. I said, why do you do that? You're provokingly silly sometimes, you know. I liked him, obviously, but... um, you know, it sometimes was painful to watch him doing certain things. I said, why? Why are you so mm, sound obnoxious sometimes in your approach to others? You know, just be a bit nicer. And, mm, and with girls, hopeless. <laughs> did he lead you astray, Jochen? No, he didn't lead me astray, no. He, did, he couldn't. He couldn't do that. I mean, I was okay myself. You know, so I didn't. I didn't worry too much about that. It was just sometimes, you know, that he became very abrasive towards girls. And uh, I said, it's a pity, James, don't do that, please. Hmm. They do their job, 
you do your job and so on and um, you know just help them it would be nice but anyway well let's talk about Nürburgring 76 because you started on slicks and had a half a minute lead after two laps now what made you start on slicks when everyone else was on wets intuition <laughs> no we had the safety car coming back and uh, Herbert Lingen, who drove it, I called him over, please. I said, how wet is it? He said, like here. So I said, no puddles, no. Only foxhole, there's a bit of water running, so there you might have a problem. But um, other than that, and I said, it's dry from where on, high eight, which is halfway mark. And um, I said, it's completely dry. Yes, completely dry. I said, until where? Antonius Bucher, which is fairly close again to start and finish. And um, so I called my guys and I said, put on slicks. I said, are you crazy? Slicks, everybody's on rain. I said, put on slicks, please. Just, let's not talk about it. Just put on slicks. And we did. And it was perfect. Damn it. It was nice. And of course, don't forget by the time the other ones then felt, or they did two laps. Some of them did three, you know, because they felt already uneasy. And I thought, damn it, that, that raised the write-off. We may as well just, you know, plow on with it. But um, my tires then were warm. We didn't have tire warmers in those days. So I had beautiful warm slicks and I could, you know, drive beautifully on that ready drying groove. I felt really good and I thought, thank God, I'm going to win the last Grand Prix, hopefully if nothing goes wrong with the engine or whatever. The last Grand Prix at the Nordschleife. And of course, finally, the German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring. Ah. What a bliss. Mm -hmm. Red flags everywhere. I thought, mm. what on earth? Mm. I thought, what's wrong now? So I got back to the pits. I said, what's the red flags for? I didn't know what had happened behind me, obviously. And I said, oh, there was a crash. I said, who? Nicky Lauda. I said, oh, damn, is he okay? Mm. They said, touch and go. I said, oh, no. Anyway, and then, uh, you know, what you say then of course you you can't argue anything and i mean nikki was against the circuit and then happened to him of all the things and so on but it was also playing into bernie's court because he didn't like the new working anymore because it became too expensive for the television coverage and then and then so it was um even so he liked the track as such of course but you know some guys didn't like it but most guys did like it so it's a great shame. How difficult was it to take the restart knowing that Nicky was in a critical condition? No problem at all. You know, you just take it. And, um, you know, it's just normal racing. And we also knew that Nicky, I heard, you know, speaking to the, to the doctors at the ring. So, of course, they were in contact. Nicky was transported down to Mannheim for the special clinic for, for burn wounds. And so on, his main problem was the, the lung being sort of with the extinguished powder and, uh, and things like, like that, which did hurt him most. So that was the biggest danger he faced. But um, he had no great breakages or whatever. So burn wounds in the head, which is, you know, dramatic enough. So I went actually after, after the racing was done, I went down with Malena to the hospital and we saw the doctors, we couldn't see Nikki was in the intensive care. And so on, we spoke to them at length and so on, and they explained. So I was in contact with them 
all the time and see his could see his progress and so on. But you know, when we then restarted and we drove, it was ironic because we had James, Schechter, and Andretti. I think Schechter was leading, James was second. Anyway, in Carousel, Andretti coming out of it with the Lotus, he missed the gear. And I pulled alongside him. I never went up, you know, bumping the wheels a little bit, and I spun around. Didn't do any harm. But of course, some quite some cars got through before I could continue. And so on, so I had to re-overtake him. I finished third at the end. But um, this was already then with the stronger engines. So it was a, was a pity. Third place, okay, I stood there bedraggled and quite frustrated, you know, on the rostrum at the end. And I uh, thought, hmm. Nikki's accident, the end of the ring. And it was a sad story, really. You know, it was nothing wonderful. One more race I'd like to ask you from your McLaren days was Canada 77. Now, you and James, <clears throat> you and James Hunt teammates, you come together and James is taken out of the race. He then punches a marshal. And then I think, isn't he sort of... <laughs> waving his fist at you every time you drive past for every lap after that. What what did he actually say to you after the race? Nothing whatsoever. He didn't even raise his fist, honestly. He didn't shake it to me. He sort of shook it behind me so I couldn't see it. He, because he knew that he made a mistake. Because I was on the left and I backed off for, to give him the fast lane. And uh, I should have perhaps just pointed more. But he followed me in. What, what happened was he must have looked in his mirror to see where Andretti was, you know, whether he would make an attempt as well to go out or so. And he, so I'm sure he looked in his mirror and then I backed off and he hit me in the back and he spun around. It's not drama really, but um, he never uttered a word towards me after the race. He never called me guilty or whatever, never ever, because he knew I wasn't. I mean, it sounds a bit... But I wasn't really, you know, giving him any. Because first I made him, I gave him a chance by slowing down Andretti for James to get past him. To get past Andretti, so suddenly he wasn't a lead. Don't forget, I was a lap behind, you know, with a strong engine <laughs> and so on. So it was quite funny. But um, yeah, it was a pity, of course. But as we know, the outcome of that season no, no, 77, sorry. Yeah, no, that was, uh, that was not good. How frustrated were you not to continue with McLaren or did it reach its natural end at the end of 77? Well, very little we could do. I mean, a lot of things changed to the team. You know, Gordon Kopok was not designing anymore this, the new car. So the M26 was not such a wonderful machine. You know, it was weight distribution and with the radiator in front and things like that. So it didn't, it didn't really match the situation. And uh, that James still won one race was mainly because of his motor. It was basically that, that which gave them still some respite in the team. So the good years with McLaren were really in the M23. You know, a funny thing once in South Africa with the M23 was James in 76. I was 19th, 20th in practice, in qualifying. We still had one hour qualifying on Friday and Saturday. And um, so I was totally 
persuaded, said, the car is never the same, guys. And I said, yeah, 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 sure. What was her name yesterday and so on? You know, giving me a sort of a, a funny look. I said, guys, there is something wrong with the car. It can't be, damn it. From one corner to the next in the back, it's never the same. Mm, they, of course they, and then Alistair pulled the car back and the mechanics, you know, a little bit to give room for James who came in, into the pits. And Alistair said, I found something. I said, what? He said, I'm not going to tell you. So I thought, hmm, I couldn't really think what he found. You know, maybe he saw something or whatever. Anyway, so I went out, third fastest time within the lap and so on. So I came in and said, what was it, damn it? He said, well, the gurney flap was only screwed on at the outer ends, you know, and the middle section was flapping like that. It was not flapping gracefully, but just enough to, to swing around, and that changed the car's behavior, the handling. Great insight, though, into how tiny little things can make a big difference to performance, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll be right back with Jochen, who was a good runner, in just a moment, because I'm calling all runners and those of you looking to start clocking up those miles. Now, as you probably already know, getting your stride and technique right is an important part of embarking on a new running regime. But one thing that shouldn't be overlooked is your footwear. Step in the new Fresh Foam 1080 V10 from New Balance. These breathable and plush running shoes combine soft foam with energetic rebound suitable for casual and hardcore runners alike, and they wrap your feet in comfort with every step you take. The soft-fitting knit upper and ultra heel give you a stylish look, while the full-length Fresh Foam midsole is made to be fresh for every run, helping you to feel confident and comfortable as you go the distance. Regardless of whether you're training for an event or simply trying to smash your own personal best, the 1080 V10 from New Balance, the best ride for the road. Visit newbalance.com to check them out for yourself. That's newbalance.com. But for now, let's get back to our chat with Jochen. Now, Jochen, I want to just look at 1978. You moved to ATS. Not a good car. Robin Hurd leaves early in the year. And then you have this crash in testing at Silverstone. You hurt yourself. You break your leg. And it's while you're in hospital that you are offered a Williams seat for 79. And for those people listening who aren't aware... That is, of course, when Williams started to dominate Formula One. So my question to you right now, <laughs> with about 40 years to reflect on it, is why did you turn Frank down for 79? I know pretty good why I did that, not to feel stupid about it. Frank had only one car in the races in those days. And he said, I've got the okay from the Saudis that we can have two cars next year, but I don't have it in writing yet. Young, it's as good as a guarantee, but uh, I still can't give it to you in writing. So I opted to drive for Arrows. They asked me to drive for them. And of course, Ricardo Patrese was very good with the car. Sometimes he was a very young boy, and I thought, if he's that quick in it, so we have a chance to win a race with these things. Instead of, you know, even Alan Jones came along and said, Jochen, drive for us. Drive for us. You know, drive, be my teammate. He said, it's going to be fantastic. The car is really good. Uh, I, I knew I made a mistake, but, you know, you still do it. And uh, it's really a, a great pity. Now, with hindsight, of course, 
it's uh you know it's something i think how could i have been so silly but i was <laughs> so what do you do you can only do what you think's right at the time i suppose how did you feel when they started winning in 79 i feel like i'm rubbing salt into the wound i don't i don't mean to but it's it's it's, no, but we, it's an interesting question i think yeah yeah we still have to talk about this ats deal because after McLaren, to drive for ATS was, especially with hindsight, the stupidest thing you could possibly do. But of course, I did not at the time, because Günther Schmidt, the owner, he had bought the Mole March setup, mechanics, Robin Hood, and all the bits and pieces of the car. And I thought, great. You know, with Robin, I really liked him. He was a good guy. And we did quite a lot in Formula 2 and so on. So he worked well with me and he liked me. And um, because, you know, I was also, I don't know, maybe you heard something different from him, but no, no. <laughs> we got on well <laughs> and so on. So in any case, but after the first race already in Argentina, they were left, the whole team left. And Robin said, Jochen, I can't work with this man. He is nuts. I said, yeah, I know, but don't leave me alone. Don't leave me stranded now without a team. I only signed because of you guys, which I did. And then, of course, I had to, you know, it was such a pity. And, you know, when, when the accident happened, I broke a lot more than just the leg. I broke the femur, I broke the knee, it was badly smashed, the tibia, and so on. So a very good doctor, unfortunately, Mr. Cobb, in Northampton Hospital, and um, lovely guys, and um, the whole team was very, very good. I had a busted lung, and I had, luckily, I don't think, it, I, I didn't break ribs, but I broke a lot of stuff on the lift, because, you know, you feel it, but it doesn't hurt. You know, it's sort of the engine flew away, luckily, uh, it didn't catch fire. Jochen, what happened in the accident at Silverstone? What caused it? What caused it was on the straight where the rear radius rod, the uniball, uniball joint snapped. So then the wheel, of course, went to the left. And then I went out and I hit the sleepers on the left, sort of, you know, the embankment. And uh, I went up like this and I could feel it. Snap, 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 power broke, left, everything. No, no, it doesn't hurt, believe me. It's, I'm not heroic. It doesn't hurt, only later. <laughs> What do you think you could have achieved at ATS had someone like Robin Hurd stayed with the team? Well, it would have been a completely different car because we had this uh, Penske car, which would have been a good car, and so on. So we could have made something more out of that one than later this chassis, which then Günther Schmidt designed and things like that. He changed the whole setup. And he always had, every other race, he came with a new wing. And he said, oh, this one... And, New radiator setting that was sitting on the side awkwardly. You've probably seen some pictures. I mean, it looked so daft that you can hardly believe that somebody did that. But that's the way it was. So, no, that was, I wanted to go anywhere already. So it was after Sanford. I think after Sanford, we went testing. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was it. Finished for the season. And then later, I drove again the first tests kilometers with the arrows in Silverstone. And it was like nothing had happened. You know, you sit in it, you drive it, and you feel good, the car is nice, 
And did that accident with the ATS slow you down in any way? I don't think so, no. I don't think so because I knew what happened. I knew why it happened. So I had no fear. It didn't bother me. It was sort of, it was the accident. You always wait to happen. And that's a strange thing because you always think one day I'm going to have an accident. I hope it, it ends up good enough. So you walk away again, you can get back in the car and drive again. You know, you're not paralyzed or you're not really badly injured and things like that. And I was badly injured, all right, but I had no, no problems physically and so on. So I drove again and it didn't bother me. I mean, I sound like a twerp when I say that, you know, sort of, they're saying he can't be right, but it's exactly what happened. I drove and I enjoyed the car again. I enjoyed, enjoyed driving. And it was good. I had good races still. Yeah. I mean, and of course, Patrese was your teammate at Arrows. Yeah. Um, ironically, really, um, by that time, he wasn't a friend of James Hunt, was he? But how quick was Patrese? What do you feel he learnt from you? Because by this time, you were experienced and he was he was new. He was almost a rookie. He was, yeah, Absolutely. And uh, it was quite funny. He was usually quicker than me in practice, qualifying. But uh, I could see him in front of me or maybe one more row ahead. And um, I always overtook him in the race. And he always had some crash with somebody and so on. He finished very few races. And I said, Ricardo, let's do something different. I said, don't overtake, number one. Do not overtake anybody unless it's very clear cut and don't take any risks. Don't just focus on finishing. Focus only on finishing and you will be in the points. I said, you're quick, damn it. But you can't always crash and this is total nonsense. I said, just stay away from any sort of, you know, doubtful situations. Just focus on finishing. And he did and he finished the points. I said, and Ricardo? He said, you were right. Jochen, you were right. Huh? It's much better like this. <laughs> I said, yes, of course. I can hear him saying that, yeah. <laughs> and then, Jochen, you sit out 81, and I do want to just ask you briefly about 82, because that March, was it the worst car you ever raced in Formula One? No, no, no. This was, no, no, undeniably ATS. ATS actually went for, it should have been APS, all parts, shh, hmm? So obviously, that's what people wrote. They wrote me a letter and said, Alle Tyler, hmm, same thing. And so on. So this was the worst car. Now, the, the, the march was, you know, with Newey, you know, being quite full of himself. But he was a good designer. Can I take you back to the start of the year? Because you're an intelligent guy and I'd love to get your take on the driver's strike in South Africa. <laughs> That was quite funny, actually. I liked it. We had sort of misgivings about the wording of our contracts with uh, Formula One license conditions, Formula One license. We were not allowed to say anything bad about anybody. Of course, I could see that because it's pitching around doesn't help usually. But they said you cannot sue, even if, if there was a deliberate mistake by whoever. Goodyear or the teams or whatever, you cannot sue them and things like that. So all these sort of stipulations we had in our contracts and they said, we can't, we won't sign that. And 
no way, no, we won't do that. We go on strike. And I said, guys, we're in South Africa. What do you want to strike for? We cannot make the thing change here. We cannot. You know, if we think we can, we are crazy. We have to do it at home. We need good lawyers. You need good and so on and so on. And then we can probably do something, but not down here. We're here. Let's race. And then we go home and see. So you were trying to be the voice of reason. Yeah, I tried to be. I tried very much to be and so on because a strike was ridiculous. Now, my first wife was a South African and uh, then my girlfriend still. And we went to their, her place. Her father was a doctor in Prakpan, which was about 45 minutes away to the south of Johannesburg. And, um, you know, Kailami was lying east of Johannesburg. So um, all these guys jumped in the bus, but I had gone already. You know, so I didn't, I wasn't aware of it. They jumped in the bus and they went to some faraway hotel and so on, which was all kept very secret. And very few journalists were allowed to know where they were and so on. And so then I went in hiding. So I got there in the morning, coming from Brackpan. You know, we had to warm up in the morning and so on. And I looked and nobody here. I said, what's wrong? Where are the guys? And then they explained. They said, oh, they've gone off with, with all the mechanics and the team team chiefs. I said, oh, they went off yesterday with the bus and they're in some hotel. And I said, oh, bollocks. I said, I'm driving. I called my guys and I said, get a car ready, I'm driving anyway. Were you ostracized from the group? Did the other drivers look very poorly on what you've done? Did they wish that you'd been with them and shown some solidarity with them? Yeah, but I don't think I was the only one. I think some guys were also shying away from it. But anyway, so I drove. And then uh, Bernie came along and he said, who's driving? I said, Mass. I said, oh, good boy. You know, this sort of thing. And I drove. And as soon as I did, they came from everywhere, jumped in their cars and all drove. And uh, afterwards, they had some, um, some words, you know, Nikki and they said, but, you know, you have to be, you just have to stick with us. I said, come on, it's nonsense. Why don't you guys stick with me? Because it was crap to trying to, to call a strike here in South Africa. Forget it. I feel not particularly proud about it or whatever, but it was just, I stuck to my convictions. Didn't feel it was right, so I, I did the opposite. Well, Jochen, let's talk about Michael Schumacher because he's been in the news quite a lot recently with Lewis Hamilton beating his win record and his son Mick on the verge of making the step up to Formula One. Given that you helped shape Michael in the early years when you were his teammate at Mercedes, can you tell us what stood out about him? Well, Michael was a very meticulous driver and he was actually very... um, It was a workaholic if it comes to setting up cars and things like that, which was for us older guys, you know, don't forget I'm older than his father. So, um, you know, it was sometimes quite annoying in a, in a nice way, you know, if he sat around still at 10 at night saying, oh, we could maybe try this, try that. And I said, leave the damn thing alone. The car is nice as it is. Don't change too much. No, he said, but it could be quicker. It could be here or there and so on and so on. That's how he was, really. But he was forever proving his point. And that was the annoying part for us older ones. You know, he actually came up with a proof that his ideas worked and so on. So (laughs) that was sometimes 
quite frustrating for us. But, you know, I also knew, of course, that I was nearing, you know, a, a retirement age and so on. So I was quite happy if I could sometimes be up to similar speeds to Michael. You know, he was not always quicker, but usually he was, of course, but not always. And if he wasn't, he came to me and he said, why are you faster than me? And I said, uh, Michael, I think it's mainly because I'm stronger than you. So, you know, it's the cars, the C9s so or C11, Mercedes's, Sauber Mercedes's, were sometimes quite hard to drive, especially with the tires we were on at the time. The Michelin tires were sometimes in a certain corner, certain type of corners, with a lot of depression load on them. The steering became very heavy and so on. And I was obviously a bit stronger, so uh, that helped me and so on. So and then he started to to do a lot of, you know, sport in order to get more muscles everywhere, which he did, of course, you know. So do you think you were the catalyst yeah. for him becoming, him, him sort of moving the bar from a fitness point of view? Mm. Yeah, you know, of course, he always looked and he, he what, what we did, the older ones, or what I did specifically, because we were on the same team. So he looked at me and he saw me as a sort of a, you know, example to the good and the bad. Sometimes he said, no, 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 he does that wrong. And sometimes, hmm, I could learn from that, and this sort of thing. Yes. But um, he was very strong in his, you know, in his attitudes and very strong in his beliefs, what would work for him and so on. So quite remarkable. So a very strong work ethic. How did he compare to the other Mercedes junior drivers of the time, Heinz Harold Frentzen and Carl Wendlinger? Uh, Carl Wendlinger was a little more laid back and uh, not that intentionally so. He wanted to be, of course, as quick as everybody, and um, but it took him a bit longer to get there. So sometimes he was, let's say, the less spontaneously um, fast driver in the team. You know, he was quick, of course, but it took him a bit longer to work on it and so on and so on. So, you know, Michael was quick and Frenzen, um, in the beginning, he was um, easy, easy going, and he was very fast. But um, he was very undisciplined, and um, so therefore he signed contracts right, left, and centre, which was very difficult for his then later manager, which he luckily uh, got finally uh, to get it all straightened and so on. So he didn't drive for Mercedes. I remember reading reports at the time yeah. that Frentzen was actually the most naturally talented of those three. Would you agree with that? He seemed the most spontaneously fast guy, you know, very natural talent. He didn't work hard enough. If it was good, he said, it's good. And he walked away. It was a bit like me, you know, sort of a lot of natural <laughs> talent, but not too much, uh, not too much work behind it. So... Sometimes that's a handicap. I think I worked a bit better than Frenson, perhaps, but, uh, you know, I got him into Williams, into the Williams team. And um, Frank called me up and he said, well, Jochen, I think the boy, you got us there, he's really good. I said, but you have got to keep him by the scuff of his neck. Otherwise, he's not disciplined enough and he will not do what you want him to do. He needs, he needs a rigid discipline from the outside and so on. And, um, you know, History proved me right. He, he should have won a lot more races, really, in the team, because I know he was quick, but he didn't. It didn't happen because he was mm, elsewhere in his mind, which is a pity. 
It's fascinating, isn't it? When you say you got him into Williams, did you act as his manager? No, not really, no, no. But um, I was, you know, very friendly with uh, with Frank Williams. And um, I wanted, of course, Frenson to be in a good team too. So um, I suggested it to to Frank and um, he looked at him and so on and in testing. But then he agreed. He said he's quick and so on. So, you know, it was one of these things. That's why later Frank Williams, much later in the 90s, he said, um, he called me up and he said, would you like to do 20 laps in my car? Which car was that? It was Pro's car. It was 95 on the championship and so on in Le Castellet, which is not so far from here. And um, I said, I'd love to. Anyway, so I did drive and the car was fantastic and I was quick. I was very quick in my 20 laps. You know, this was 12 years, nearly 13 years out of Formula One. Within two or three laps, I was going flat out with the Williams. I was doing senior flat, which was speed 347 kilometers. I have to be meticulous with that. 347. <laughs> yes, you've got a great memory. <laughs> with Sauber Mercedes, the 291, we did 352. So that means it was even quicker. So I was quite in tune with the track. How did you find all the driver aids in the FW15? That they had, It had traction control, it had a semi-automatic gearbox, it had active suspension. I sat in the car quite bewildered. I mean, finally, first I had to fit in. This was already difficult because I'm a little chunkier than most guys today. And I was then, so you had to take the seat out, the fire extinguisher and all sorts of things for me in order to get in. And I almost felt claustrophobic. So I was happy. I came in once and I said, I had a little bit of understeer, some part of the track. I was quite exhausted already after 10 laps. Got a bit of an understeer, hoping they would have to do something in the back of the car, you know, for to give me a breather of 30 seconds or whatever. Nope, he just turned a little button on the on the dash and he said, okay, go. <laughs> so <laughs> I did go again. and uh, But I thought the car with all the help it had, you know, the electronics and so on. It was fantastic to drive. It was easy to drive. I said, with that car, you can only become world champion. Seriously, the car was so nice. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous from the effort or the, the let's say, the non-existing effort to drive it. You know, it was just fast, wonderful. It felt good. Everything was perfect. Michael called me up later and he said, you know, I'm going to, I'm driving for Williams next year. I said, fantastic. He said, Michael, really good. You know, because I like Frank a lot and I really wanted him to have the best driver and da, 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 da. But for Michael, I said, listen, whatever you win now, it's the car. It's not you. The car is too good. You know, you need, let's say, Ferrari, get it out of the, out of the trough where it is in, you know, pull it out and make them champions again. You will be king of Italy. He said, nah, I don't know, I don't know. And he called me up a month later and he said, I'm going to Ferrari. I said, well done. You know, of course I felt sorry on the way for Frank, but, you know, these championships, if you have a very superior car, of course have less weight than if you make Ferrari world champions again. Hang on, I need to stop you there, Jochen. So there was a chance that Michael Schumacher could have raced for Williams in the mid-90s. Of course, he wanted to. Had I, had I sort of approved it, <laughs> if you like, had I said, great idea, super, do it, do it. He would have done it, yes. Jochen is just the latest big name from F1's history that we've heard from on Beyond the Grid. On this show... 
We love digging into stories from the sport's past. But new stories are being created every race weekend, and you can hear them all on the F1 Paddock Pass podcast. F1 Paddock Pass is the place to hear the 2020 drivers full of emotion and adrenaline just minutes after climbing from their cars. Episodes are free to listen to and come out exclusively on Spotify three times every race week, and you don't need a premium account to listen to them. On Thursdays, Will Buxton previews the weekend's action, getting the driver's views on F1's hottest issues. After qualifying on Saturday, the drivers relive the fight to be fastest. We talk to the star performers up and down the grid, the pole sitter, and look ahead to the race itself. Then on Sunday, minutes after crossing the finish line, the race winner celebrates with F1 Paddock Pass. Plus surprise podium finishers, the point scorers, the happy and the heartbroken after every Grand Prix. It's your complete race weekend audio guide. Listen to F1 Paddock Pass for free, no need for a premium account, on Thursdays, Saturdays and Sundays of every race week, only on Spotify. And hit the follow button for the fastest way to get every episode. Jochen, it's a fascinating relationship that Michael had with you. It seems that it was quite paternal. He looked at you as his racing father. Is that fair? In a way, I was. You know, I mean... He looked at me and I was older than his dad. So, uh, I mean, it made quite an impact the way he sort of looked at me naturally. You know, in the interviews, he said, it was always nice to be with me, to listen to me and da-da-da-da. And so on, of course, you know, he was friendly. But he also knew where he had the edge on me by a long shot. But he also felt that he could learn something. And that's nice, you know. That's basically what my job was with him you know nobody expected me to to be quicker than michael just to be a good example for him in a team like mercedes or whatever and so on so it's basically just that role which needs a bit of consideration as well as a young driver you know later when he suddenly came up you know after his his years with uh, with ferrari and then he sort of sat in his house and he did a lot of exercises and this and that, and then he wanted to do motorcycles, hmm. which he had never done in his life. I said, Michael, don't do it. He called me up and said, I'm going to race motorbikes. I said, but Michael, why do you believe you can do that? You've never done it before. And I knew how he drove and so on, so how he rode a bike. And um, it was good road use, but not more than that. You know, it's different if you race bikes. Damn it, I mean, this is a very intense game. And... Um, so I said, don't do it. And of course, then you had Mick Doohan staying with him as a tutor, if you like. And uh, Mick tried to help. And finally, I said, um, after it didn't go that well, obviously, during the season. So I said to Mick, um, and what do you think? He said, I've given up. I've moved out. I can't do it anymore. I cannot do it anymore. He said, he is totally resistant to any suggestions I make or all the other guys. Because all the Formula One guys were glued to the television screens on the race days, you know, all the Americans and all that, because they were curious to see how he does. And um, we often met them in Goodwood, you know, most many of them. And I said, what do you think? And he said, forget it. I said, it's forever and so on. He's forever in the wrong place or the wrong, you know, it's too early, too late in the corner and too low down and God knows what. Sure, because it's something... You know, you, you're not born with and you're not, you haven't done it as a young kid 
and so on. So you can never gain that edge later. You cannot, and so on. So he paid quite a price for that too. And then he drove again. Mercedes, giving him the eighth championship. I'm sarcastic now, but um, of course I said, Michael, don't do it. Don't do it. They just are happily taking your seven championships and put them on their banners and say, here we have the big champion. Sure, fair enough. But they didn't give it to you. And they can't. They don't have the car and so on and so on. But anyway, I did it and we know the outcome. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. Is there anything you do differently in your Formula One career? Yes. Yes, I think I would. You know, with hindsight, naturally I would. You know, I would definitely think whether I would drive for Surtees in the beginning, you know, when you had the chance getting into the tour. Mm, you know, this was, of course, don't forget it was the weekend when uh, Severe died, you know, in Watkins Glen. When uh, Terrell came to me on the golf course, and he said, so can we talk about next year and so on? So I looked at him and I thought, no, I don't think we can because, not because of the accident, not because of this and that, just because of the agreement I had. So then he, anyway, he said, oh no, that we can't and so on. But um, this was something I would have perhaps insisted more, you know, to get out of Surtees, uh, contract contractual conditions or situation and uh, try to drive for Tyrrell. I think I could have done that had I been more more forceful. But, um, you know, it was always like that with me. I was a bit too easy. What was the greatest win of your career? Ah, look, I mean, you know, you look, all your attempts in Le Mans, where I was unlucky sometimes with the Porsche. I mean, don't forget, I didn't drive with Jackie X in Le Mans because Derek Bell drove, but only because I didn't want to drive at all. I had in my contract not to drive Le Mans because I had these misgivings about the safety of the circuit, the sort of ignorant behavior of the, of the automobile club, the West, whatever, and so on. The pits were terrible. The safety was terrible. You know, the guardrails were not mounted properly. I mean, they keeled over when you hit them. Then you flew into the woods. And we had every race, we had a guy killed at Marshalls. So that's why I thought, this is ridiculous, damn it. Why must we do that? You know, we can do it better. And if they just would make a triple tire guardrail, mount them better in the soil, and so on with, and then it would be better, but they didn't do it. And so on. So that's why in my Porsche contract was always, no Le Mans. But they said, you have to be there as a reserve driver, just in case. That's what I was a few times. Otherwise, I would have won with Jackie as many races as Derek and so on, or as Jackie, you know. So, but I didn't do it out of principal reasons. So I had my reasons for myself why I did do certain things or why I didn't do certain things. And um, yeah, it was just that. And then later, you know, I drove with Stefan Belov, who were leading. And then something silly went on the motor, you know, gaskets dissolved or whatever. And, you know, she wouldn't start anymore on Sunday afternoon, just after lunch. <laughs> and um, yeah, things like that. So I should have won Le Mans a few times, but, you know, I won it eventually with the Mercedes and it was great, you know. And 
in 88 already, but that's another story. You know, I opted for not driving, or let's say I convinced the team not to tempt fate and drive the race because we had no control over the tire stability. That means they were flexing too much. We had too much downforce and the tires were working too much. So the, the, the sidewalls broke. And then of course you do what, 350, 80, 400 nearly. I mean, what sort of risk is that? The first attempt back in Le Mans, you know, for Mercedes, and then we a big accident. I said, how crazy would that be? So I said, let's pack up and go home and we test more. And then we know. So in 89, we did that. I did a lot of testing in Clermont-Ferrand. We reduced the downforce, you know, under the benevolent guise of the Michelin engineers, Pascal Petit. And he said, Jochen, you must reduce the downforce. Uh, I said, but, you know, why don't you just build a different tire, damn it, a stiffer one. Jochen, c'est pas ça. So, you know, the, the downforce is too much and uh, the tire is... Uh, I said, yeah. anyway... So we were slow in the slow corners. The Porsche were all over us, but they couldn't get past, luckily, because I was so much quicker on the straight. And um, that's why we won the race. But you know, we did what? Eventually, we did 422, which is quick on the French country road. It's a good speed. Yeah, yeah, that's mad. Um, who was the best teammate you ever had in sports cars? The most talented? No, Jackie Hicks was very good. And he was a very solid long distance driver. And we got on very well. So we had pretty much the same idea about setting up cars. So that was nice. Of course, you know, in the Porsche we had, it was with Jackie all the time. And of course, occasionally when I drove with Stefan Belov, who was very quick, you know, with Derek Bell, I rarely ever drove, Bern Schuppan and so on. So this was, it was Jackie basically, who was the best teammate you could wish for. You know, he was solid and there was, he was reliable, he didn't make mistakes, and so on. And of course, we were a solid team. It worked well. So that's why, you know, the fastest would have been perhaps Stefan Belov at the time. But, you know, he raced too briefly with us. And then he drove the Walter Brun car because um, he had other plans in Formula One and God knows what, and so on. So he became uh, a bit reckless. He was one of these young guys who couldn't die. They thought they'd get away with everything. And that was a pity. How much we would love, you know, often we had these uh, meetings with a lot of young young guys saying, and saying, ah, oh, Jackie X is at fault with a bad accident in Spa with Stefan Belov. And so on. they said, no, he's not. Absolutely not. Jackie had nothing to do with it. You know, he was just driving his lane and, uh, Stefan wanted to overtake him on the outside. You can't do that in the ocean, certainly not Jackie, and so on. So it was just one of these reckless maneuvers which Stefan was capable of doing. And, um, you know, it was great shame. We had at Nürburgring when he was leading, because, you know, in the thousand kilometers, I was lying second, and I started to fly the plants garden. <coughs> because when the the side pods lost a little bit of downforce, then the car got a bit light, and then you start taking off, and then I landed nicely, and so I went back to the pits, and we had a pit stop, and Stefan at the same time. So I said, be careful, Stefan, you know, in the back, 
uh, if that is happening to your car, I think you take off there quite quite easily. He said, ha, ha, ha. Mm. He said, that's only for you, not for me, this sort of thing. First lap Audi went flying big time, wrecked the car completely. So I said, and it didn't hurt himself, luckily. So I said, Stefan, and? He said, yeah, but he said, mm, you were right, but, uh, you know, it uh, shouldn't happen. I said, yeah, exactly. You know, this sort of thing. And Stefan was very, very, let's say, confident that nothing could happen like that. Great shame. Fascinating insight into someone yeah. like him. Also, it was an odd time, wasn't it? Because particularly in the 70s, you were racing sports cars, teammates with some of these people, and then the next weekend, you'd be racing against them as rivals in Formula One. Yeah, but it was great. You know, it was nice to have good rivals. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> rivals who you knew well, I guess. No, no, no. But this is, this is normal. I mean, you race and you know what your car can do and you know what his car might be able to do and so on. So it was never any particular worry. You know, you, you looked at, you know, the other guy in the car, sometimes they look back and you wave quickly and so on. It happened. It was not such a tense um, existence, you know, as you have later perhaps. Now the cars are so quick that you, you can't even, you don't have much room to, to look around and wave at somebody. Forget it. You know, you're focused on your, on your line with this sort of half steering wheel you have and so on. So we had much more time to, uh, to be friendly with each other even when you were in competition. You know, I waved at Nikki, which was with the arrows for the A2, fantastic car, A3. It's very nice. And um, first lap, Buenos Aires, Nikki led and I overtook him. My car was good. I thought, great. Fantastic. And I took him and I waved at him and he looked at me and he shook his head. <laughs> you know, we passed him. Then we got to the infield and the road broke up. But, you know, I, sh I should have known that because we've done that in the, in the formation lap already. We had seen it. So I got off the pedal and I just hooked on the catch fencing and I broke my nose. So I had a pit and I finished seventh finally. And it was me. That was silly me. You know, sort of, there's no time to look around already then, but you know, you did anyway, but uh, yeah. So you make these mistakes and that's something, of course, with hindsight now, I think you've been dumb, you know, just focus more on it and don't do things. Andretti, my claim to fame, Brazil, talking about Brazil again, coming down, same thing. I overtook him, he was in the Lotus and uh, my McLaren was quick and the engine was good. And I came down, overtook him, you know, after the double left-hander and then this long downhill section. And then the bottom, you have this tightish left-hander coming up. But I liked the track and I was quick there. I was quick there too, but a bit too deep. And the same thing, rope broke up and I spun off and I hit the armco. And on that weekend in Brazil, they introduced a speed limit of 100 kilometers. And they're the outlying borders of the country of Brazil with the Atlantic coast as a racetrack. And I said, on this racetrack, only 100 kilometers. And if you go faster, 
this will happen to you. And that was me. For 10 years, I shouted. It came to fame. It was uh, ridiculous. <laughs> oh, what a great story. Well, no. Jochen, it's been completely wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. It's been fascinating. No, look, I mean, it's a, it's a life. You know, you live and it's a life. You live intensely. The ups and downs, the highs and the lows. And you can be grateful for it. And you can be, you have certain misgivings about things you did or what happened to you and so on. But it's basically, you can only blame yourself at the end and so on. And then uh, with the blaming, it's such a thing, you know, you don't want to blame yourself all the time. It's um, sometimes sorts of bad luck. Sometimes it just doesn't add up to the a more successful race life. But, you know, I was very successful with the sports cars, with the touring cars and with the this and that. It was fantastic. And, all the accidents I had were not that many, but yet some big ones. I survived without any particular following pains except my knee. But um, so that's, that's great. You know, that's something you have to be very grateful for. I drove trucks and I drove the, the IROC in the States. I drove IndyCar quite often, you know, did all the testing for the, all the development work for Porsche and so on and so on. So I drove all these different machines which I'm very thankful for that I could do it. And, um, you know, I was quick in all of them. I think if you are open to all that, don't overdo it, try to force it too much. You can have so much fun in life. What an illuminating chat. There are way too many highlights for me to list here. But how good was he on the serious side of Michael Schumacher or the safety conscious Emerson Fittipaldi and the playboy James Hunt? Another thing I really enjoyed was the insight he gave us into his racing brain, how he rationalised the decisions he made, be it not signing for Tyrrell in 1974 or Williams in 1979, and why he discouraged Schumacher from signing for Williams. Jochen, I loved our chat. Many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up. Now, before we go, there's just time to take a dive into the virtual mailbag to see what you've been saying about the show. And my chat with Eric Boulier last week has generated a bit of debate. Nicholas Marsh got in touch to say this. As I listened to this while on the rowing machine in the gym, I was hoping for the McLaren years in detail. He was not giving much away on this or many other areas. And I agree with you, Nicholas. Eric was tight-lipped about some things, and let's hope he writes a book one day and tells all of the unspoken stories. Sarah Merritt gave us a nice shout-out when she tweeted this. Really enjoyed listening to this podcast. I chatted with Eric many times at testing and very much miss seeing him at races. But I can see how he's been keeping himself busy. Give it a listen. Well, thanks for the call to arms, Sarah. And there's no doubting that Eric is one of the nicest guys in Formula One. He has time for everybody. And Gorgon to Playa Grinch said this. I hope I pronounced your name right, by the way. Absolutely loved the podcast of Eric. Loved his honest views about giving drivers their space and doing their own thing alongside Formula One. It's a real good listen. Well, glad you enjoyed it, Gorgon to Playa. Eric is an absolute master at getting the best out of drivers and I loved his thoughts on Roman Grosjean in particular. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this week. As ever, please rate and review us if you've got time. We really appreciate it. 
And if you want to send me a message, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.